Welcome to Aging in Full Bloom with Lisa Stockdale, sponsored by Capital Healthcare Network, an Ohio-based, family-owned and operated company providing solutions that help seniors age on their own terms. Those solutions include home care, senior living, nursing home and rehab care, and hospice. Learn more at CapitalHealthCareNetwork.com. Thank you for listening to Aging in Full Bloom. Today we have a very special author on the phone with us, uh, Miss Eleanor Lerman. Did I pronounce your name correctly, last name, or did I get that wrong? You got it exactly right. Exactly right. I like when that happens because I think names are important. Eleanor, thank you for joining us. Where are you calling in from? I am in Long Beach, New York, which is about 40 minutes uh, from the city, from New York City. Yes. Um, so, have you lived there all your life? I've lived in and around New York City all my life. This is uh, a beach town near another beach town where I used to live. But, yep, never out of the state, never lived out of the state. Fair to call you a New Yorker. Absolutely. Absolutely. I died in, what is the expression? <laughs> it's gone. Died in the wool. Okay. And you are the author of several books, but one that is being released this month. Has it has it been released already, Watkins Glen? Uh, June 21st is the official uh, release date. Okay. And this is your fifth novel? Yes. Oh, my goodness. Well, how do you find t- – is this what you do for a living, right? Or did you do something different and you have found writing as a second passion? I um, have been writing most of my life. My first book of poetry was released when I was 21. So I've been doing this for a very, very long time. Uh, Poets generally don't make any money. And (laughs) actually, most novelists and, and short story writers don't either. You know, there's not a lot of middle ground. Either you're someone like John Grisham or you're you know, a struggling writer. Yeah. So I always manage to uh, have parallel tracks. I have done everything from manage a harpsichord factory when I was earlier, when I was younger, uh, to being a speechwriter later in life and, and being an editor. So I was always able to, you know, do work that at least supported me. And then I learned to write on subways, on buses, when, when I was commuting or early in the morning. And I, I think most writers who are not really able to support a whole life on what they make from their work do do something similar. Yeah, you just find ways to to work in the interstices. Now I'm I'm going to force my 23 year old son to listen to this podcast because you just gave him <laughs> some wonderful advice. Um, he is a writer working on um, his second novel, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. And he's very dedicated. He he edits for two hours every day and writes for three hours every day when he doesn't have class. And he takes every summer off to do this. But you got to stay in school, son, because you're probably not going to make a living off of writing. Although you could, you could. Um, but it's such a passion for him. I mean, um, it's, you know, I think everyone who's an artist, I mean, it's born in you. Mm-hmm. You're a painter, a dancer, performer a writer, it's born in you. But the thing you do learn as you go along is I, it doesn't, I'm not failing if I have to find something else to do to support myself. Because it's not a world in which artists are, you know, rewarded with tons of money for their work. There you go. Yeah, you're not failing. You're not 
any less an artist than anyone else who's, you know, on TV or making a lot of money or, you know, being um, interviewed on the Howard Stern show. You are doing your work. You're self-driven. You do it by yourself because you want to. And you have another life that, you know, lets you pay the bills. There's nothing wrong with that. It's actually a very brave thing to do. We could stop right there, and that, there's so much wisdom in that. Brett, you're nodding your head. You agree with me, right? We're not going to stop right there, but we could. Thank you for that, Eleanor. That, that was beautifully um, said and spoken and lived. Um, so you're speaking well, yeah. from experience. Yep, I've been doing this a very long time, and you know, you learn to uh, you learn to find ways to go on doing whatever your art is, and you know, still managing to buy dog food. So, <laughs> so Watkins Glen, what is it about? Um, I think it's it's about two two separate streams that come together at the end, and one is it's about a woman who has bumped around a lot in life. She's kind of lived through the hippie era and never, you know, really found anything specific that she wanted to do as work, but she's, you know, taken care of herself and she's lived. And now she's older. She's in her 60s. And she's gone back to live in a place where she spent her childhood summers, Watkins Glen, New York, which is a famous racetrack. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's about this woman coming to terms with getting older and how she's going to live her life now, now that she's not the young, wild, crazy person that maybe she (laughs) was that did what she wanted to do. But the other part of it is that she's been estranged from her brother, an older brother, for a good part of her life. And he's become, uh, he he now has Alzheimer's. And it's going to fall upon her to take care of him. Does she want to? Can she? What's the relationship between these two siblings now that they're older? Mm-hmm. For, for me, um, that part of the book was drawn upon. I have a younger brother, which makes it sound like he's 19. I'm 69 and he's 65, but he's still my, I still gets to be my younger brother. Of course. But he's been, he's been my, you know, my best friend, I think, all my life. We've talked a lot about, he and I went through a very difficult and somewhat dangerous and violent childhood together. Mm-hmm. And we've talked about how each of us has been the other's witness through life, to be able to say, yeah, these things really happened and they were as bad, but, you know, we lived through it. So I also wanted to address in a sibling relationship, whether it's um, two or three people who've been close all their lives or who've drifted away, the importance of having someone who knows your, who's been there, who knows your story, mm-hmm. and who, even if there's problems with this person, is the one who can you, you can turn to and say that really happened, or dad was really like that, or mom really did this and that. The other person can say, yeah, even 60, 70 years later, I can tell you your memory is correct. That yeah. did happen. So. So I I have to share a little something personal with you. Um, A couple of months ago, I lost a brother, um, my baby brother, but he was 50. Um, And all of these things that you are saying are so true, that this is the beauty of a sibling relationship. Mm -hmm. And I wrote of him, you know, he was many things to many people, but he'll always be my baby brother. Um, we covered for each other. (laughs) We had each other's back. We fought, 
we fought some more. We laughed. <laughs> we did all that stuff. Um, and it was okay. And what you say, we understood each other's backstory um, in a way that no one else ever could because you live it together. Um, so uh, thank you for focusing on the sibling relationships. I think people sometimes overlook the importance of it or they take it for granted like it'll always be there it won't always be there you better embrace that you better get your head around it um and uh you know there's there's an old uh, vaudeville joke my my father aspired to be a vaudeville comedian vaudeville doesn't exist anymore but some people listening to the to you will probably remember what vaudeville was uh-huh. lots of bad old jokes but my father, one of the jokes that is always stuck in my mind, my father used to do this routine, and it was he would describe this um, old woman, you know, kind of disheveled and you know, just a very old lady. I'm going to do a Jewish accent. I can. I'm Jewish. This is my dad talking. <laughs> and the old Jewish lady would say, Wait, my bruder, my brother, my bruder is coming. And it, my baby bruder, my baby brother, and into the room would walk this fat old man. But to her, this was a baby brother. You got it. And, you know, everyone in my father's audience of, you know, the neighborhood people, mostly old, uh, more old Jewish people, would applaud because this is what they knew. This was still your baby. It would always be your baby brother. Of course. So Im- I, I, I understand the heartache. Yes. The yeah. importance of family, right? Those, yeah. those family connections. Yeah. So I know that you, I haven't read the book yet. I'm going to, I promise you. Um, and I know that you want people to take away a notion of hope. Um, yeah. And, and purpose and meaning. Um, mm-hmm. Speak to me about that. How do you, how do you think that will work? Well, um, one of the other themes of the book, and it's something that I think for you know people as they get older resounds through your life in ways you never understood. One of the things that happens to us all is we confront illness. It gets us all in the end. Nobody gets out of here without, you know, if, if you're lucky, you go to sleep and, you know, you wake up riding a unicorn in heaven. <laughs> but otherwise, you know, most of us are going to confront some kind of yes. um, illness at some point. So one of the things that happens in the book is that the brother, as his mind becomes more, as he struggles more with his, his mind and his thoughts, uh, begins to imagine that there's a lake monster living in the lake near Watkins Glen, Seneca Lake. What, um, you know, like a Loch Ness. Like Loch Ness, I was going to say, yeah. Yeah, Like Nessie. So what um, the monster, of course, he's not real, he or she is imaginary, but what it represents to the brother is his fears for himself because there's ecological damage to the lake at some point, and he wonders if if the lake monster has been harmed. Um, is it going to disappear? You can see him projecting into this imaginary creature how frightened he is and how also still his sister, in beginning to be able to talk to him about the lake monster and understanding what it means to him, can begin to relate to how frightened he is by being sick. Mm-hmm. So this imaginary creature becomes a vehicle 
not only for him to project outward some of his own fears about his illness so he doesn't necessarily have to feel them every minute of every day, but also a way for the sister to talk to him. She has a conversation with him about the lake monster when he's worried that um, floods in the lake and, and other damage have harmed it. And, oh, she brings him to a friend of hers who knows a lot about fishing and has the friend explain to the brother why a cold-water mammal would survive any kind of damage to a lake. Mm-hmm. Because he knows they would know to go, like the fish, when it's cold, they know to go to the bottom of the lake and they won't be harmed. So yeah. she's found a way, even through imagination, to try and, and, and give him some hope. So, you know, again, as we all get older and as we confront front illness, you have to be realistic about the things that happen to you. But if you don't have some hope of good outcomes for yourself, whatever they may be, mm-hmm. um, it's almost as if you're giving up <clears throat> any chance of still having happy days. And I think even when we're confronted with illness or with disabilities, there's still always, there are still always happy days and good days. And I think that's what I was trying to end with. It's, it's none of us are going to get out here out of here without problems, but there are ways to talk to each other and help each other through them. And then that, and that's really it's the simple human contact and kindness that I suppose this past year has also taught us many many lessons about. I think we've all never understood how much we missed people mm-hmm. until we could go hug people. Yeah, how much we really need each other. Yeah. And yeah. you're right. Um, we do all face illness um, if we live long enough. Um, mm-hmm. And if it's not illness, it's something else like grief. There will be hard times. And yeah. and they can be brutal. I said to my, my mother and I are, of course, grieving together right now. And we happen yeah. to live together. And that's good and bad because <laughs> there's nowhere to run. Um, but I said... I think just last night, I wish something good would happen. And she said, it will, sissy. Just hold on. Good things will happen again. And that's the purpose of hope, isn't it? We cannot, um, we can't surrender it. We can't throw it in or give up or throw our hands in the air. We have to keep pushing forward with hope. And your mother seems to know that, so. She does. Believe your mom. She's smarter than me. She always has been. So, I'm going to read this book, and then I will write about it um, on on the blog. It's called Watkins okay. Glen. Um, sounds to me like something you all might want to be interested in picking up. Publishes on the 20th, did you say, of this month? 21st. 21st. And where will it be available? Uh, everywhere. Books are available, you know, Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Uh, you can get it at the publisher's website. It's May Apple Press. Okay. All right. Well, um, would you be interested in coming back on after I've read it? And let's talk a little more in depth about it. Of course. All right. We'll schedule something like that in the future. In the meantime, Eleanor, thank you for your wisdom. And and thank you for um, your generosity in terms of dedicating all the time and commitment that you have um, into writing and, and paying it forward. It's greatly appreciated. Thank you, Lisa, and say hello to your son for me and tell him, just keep going. I certainly (laughs) will. Keep going, but, but mom's right, stay in school. 
Yes. <laughs> you heard that, Isaiah. She said Mommy's got this one right. Listeners, we hope you enjoyed the program. Until um, next time, may the road rise to meet you. May the wind be forever at your back.